All right. Well, that is exciting that we have the opportunity to share with Lane and Lily in uh, their obedience to Christ through baptism. And we are just thankful for how God is at work in the life of this precious family. And uh, I just want to say to all of you who are here today who might be visiting with us that we as a church are incredibly grateful to have you with us. And we would love to know who you are. If you are watching online for the first time, thank you for joining us that way as well. Uh, You can text the word CONNECT to the number that you see on the screen, and one of our team members will follow up with you this week. If you're with us on campus, I would encourage you to stop by one of the welcome areas on your way off campus, and our team will be there to greet you and answer questions that you might have and let you learn how you can be more involved in the life of our church. Uh, As Eddie mentioned, Paracaleo is a great uh, ministry of this church, and if you as a family uh, are going through anything that he referenced, I would encourage you to reach out to the church office or reach out to them directly. You can find information on our website, and uh, we would love to connect you with that group. Also, I just want to celebrate God's uh, faithfulness in our church. We had 12 members go to Florida Baptist Disaster Relief Training uh, yesterday to complete that, to be ready for this upcoming hurricane season if something comes uh, our way, or uh, even to partner with other churches uh, in other states uh, if need be. And so we're excited about that, and we're also excited about our Bayshore Kids Clubs, uh, which are taking place in just over a week, and so uh, there will be uh, activities taking place all throughout Niceville and Valparaiso, and so hopefully you've registered your children for one of those clubs. Uh, if, if you have not already, go do that. Uh, also, we do need about 20 more volunteers to help with uh, the Bayshore Kids Club, specifically in the evenings uh, and it, at, at the one on Eglin Air Force Base, so if you already have base access, uh, you can serve at those. There's a training taking place today in our fellowship hall at 12.30. So we'll feed you and go over everything you need to know and give you the opportunity to answer questions you might have about uh, serving at those kids' clubs. And we're excited to see what God does through those. Well, uh, you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. As we continue in the Gospel of Mark, we're in verses 38 through 40 this morning. We'll be moving into chapter 13 in two weeks, and the tone uh, changes in chapter 13 as Jesus talks about uh, things to come, the last days, and then we read about Jesus' last days on earth as we wrap up the Gospel of Mark. But today we look at the last direct teaching about the scribes and Pharisees. Granted, what we are looking at next week definitely is connected to what we're looking at today. Our verses today are in many ways a kind of summary a thesis of the problem with the scribes and Pharisees and the reason for their coming judgment. So let's read these three verses in Mark, and then I'll explain what Jesus is saying, and then we'll let those words examine our current landscape of Christianity, and most importantly, we'll let those words examine our lives. Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast. Who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Pray with me. Jesus, may your words not only be words that we hear, but words that our heart absorbs. God, may we not point the finger, but may we examine ourselves. And God, may you increase and may I decrease and may there be glory to Jesus' name as a result of what happens through our time in the word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
So here in Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 40, Jesus is talking to the disciples. In Matthew chapter 23 and in Luke chapter 20, both of those gospel accounts tell us that Jesus is talking to the crowd and the disciples. So there's debate on when uh, this took place actually, but because the placement of it in Luke, and since there's not an actual reference to time in these three verses. So some say that it took place in the temple, Days before Jesus' crucifixion, after he had been addressing the scribes and the Pharisees and answering their questions, uh, which I lean towards given verses 41 through 44. But some say that Mark just inserts it and Mark Matthew just inserts it here as a kind of recap of ongoing teaching of Jesus after the exchange he has with the chief uh, priests, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. The imperfect tense uh, that's used here in these three verses lends itself to it possibly being not a direct conversation that took place at this time. But the placement of it doesn't change the meaning of it, so we'll just move forward. In the text, Jesus brings up five issues with the scribes, and we'll first turn our attention to those five issues. And uh, I'm using the Bible Markup app, which is an app you can download for Bible study to just emphasize these five things that Jesus talks about. The first one we see is in verse 38. Jesus says, that they like to walk around in long robes. A stale was a loose outer garment for men that extended to the feet. It was worn by kings, it was worn by priests, and it was worn by persons of ranks. So instead of the colored and multicolored robes that were worn by the typical person in their culture, the scribes would wear white robes that had tassels surrounding them on the base as they moved around. And so presumably, it was something to notice when they were able to get everything moving and flowing and bouncing uh, in their robe as they moved to and fro. These were robes that were used to be worn in the temple, but they would wear them outside of the temple to be noticed. Matthew tells us in his gospel, chapter 23, verse 5, that they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Phylacteries were something that people attached to their clothing, to their robe, to obey Deuteronomy, chapter 11, verse 18, literally. And these would be worn by adults in the mornings, but the scribes would wear them at other times. The tassels that they had were worn to obey Numbers 15, verse 37 through 42, and Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 12. I actually believe Jesus wore these as well, according to the account in Matthew 9, 20 and 14, 36. But what we know is that the scribes and religious crowd would enlarge these phylacteries And lengthen these robes, lengthen um, these tassels to be noticed. They wanted to appear religious and they dressed so that they would be seen as such. Jesus also points out in verse 38 that they like greetings in the marketplace. The word greetings can also be translated salutations. It's, It's the word used for proper greetings. And so they expected a proper greeting as a rabbi, as a father, as a master. Matthew tells us in his gospel, Matthew chapter 23, verse seven, that they like greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. And there was a certain sign that would be associated with being a rabbi, being a teacher, and they would be kissed on the cheek. 
we see actually Jesus doing this, excuse me, Judas doing this to identify Jesus, uh, ironically, when he betrayed Jesus. And so they wanted this kind of greeting. They wanted to be respected for their religiousness, and they wanted the recognition and the respect that that meant that they were owed. As we go on to verse 39, we see a third thing that Jesus points out. They want to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast. With both of these phrases, the best seats and the places of honor, in those Greek phrases used, the word protos is included, which means first or of rank. And so the best seats or the chief seats are referring to seats designated for people of rank. Now, these aren't just like courtside seats or press box seats. These would actually be seats that if you were in the arena, they would be elevated so that people's attention would not be on those playing basketball, but it would be on you or where a spotlight would be pointed toward your press box the whole time so everybody's attention was focused on you. There's actual archaeological evidence that there were elevated seats uh, in the synagogues where people would sit in the seats of honor. These were places of recognition. They wanted to stand out among the religious brethren when they gathered to open the word and worship together. They believed that they deserved this type of privilege and prominence because of who they were. In verse 40, Jesus says they devour widows' houses. Now here, when we read this, we see a negative. But I believe a negative is implied to the original hearer in all of what Jesus is saying. But what this is telling us is that these scribes would take advantage of widows. They were convincing widows to leave their estate to them personally or to their ministry. Now, there's nothing wrong with somebody leaving an organization or a church or ministry or whatever it may, whatever they want to do with their money uh, when, when they pass. But what was happening was these scribes were particularly attaching themselves to widows in order to gain favor, to manipulate these widows. And in some instances, they were actually pulling from their resources before these widows would pass away and often leaving these widows to be more destitute or have less means while benefiting it from themselves. Now, the fact that they are doing the opposite of what religion teaches about caring for widows is very revealing of who they are. And I believe as we look at verses 41 through 44 next week, we'll kind of see the, the heart here that we're supposed to have as believers. But these religious leaders believed because of their piety, because of their position, that they deserved the resources from these widows and weren't really concerned with what that meant or the implications were on these widows. The last thing that Jesus shows us here, the last issue we see, is that they make for a pretense long prayers. For a pretense make long prayers. They have an ulterior motive in their prayers. In that day, it was commonplace to pray long prayers that were very elaborate and that were very clothed in scripture almost as a performance. And people would walk away impressed with someone's piety by how they prayed. It was a show. It was impressive. They wanted people to be impressed with them. And so what we see here in this text is that scribes held positions that were created to help people learn the laws of God 
And Jesus is clearly revealing that they were, at least the majority of them were, motivated by pride, greed or envy, and hypocrisy. And instead of surrender to God and sacrifice and compassion for God's people to know him, they were focused on elevating themselves. Their gifts were not a means to service to God and the people they served. They were a means for status for themselves. And here we see a warning to the scribes or about the scribes, to the religious followers of Jesus at this day, and a warning for us as well today. And that is this. Religion goes wrong, excuse me, religion goes in a wrong direction when the motivation of our activity is something other than surrender to God and service to others. Religion goes in a wrong direction when the motivation of our activity is something other than surrender to God and service to others. Now, in our culture, we're increasingly less religious. In our church, just for example, we have many people who are members of our church, so they're on our roll, but I've never met them in five years, or who I very seldom see. And the reality is they want their name on the roll, but they don't really care or don't really practice. I'm not talking about those who have health issues, but they don't really practice any of the things we say we covenant to believe in. And, and I would just say, by and large, it's because there's not really a surrender to Jesus. And so we increasingly see less of a commitment to the church, to religion, by people who claim the name of Jesus. But on the other hand, what can happen is we can adhere to religious activity and we can believe that that religious activity actually is what makes us right with God. In Matthew chapter 23, Matthew writes down a list of woes to the scribes and Pharisees from Jesus, including their conversions, their evangelism that is doing more harm than good including their emphasis on appearing religious while missing the purity and the compassion of God, including their rejection of God's prophets and of God's word. I would encourage you to go examine Matthew chapter 23 and the woes listed there on your own. And in those verses, we see more of what our verses show us today, that you can forget God in the whole function of religion, which is intended to remind us of our need for God. See, for many, religion is simply a system that makes us feel good. It makes us feel justified. We're good with God because we do this, no matter how traditional or how informal that religion we have is. You see, you and I know we need justification. If we're honest, we know we need to be justified with God. We know that God is holy and we are not. I mean, some of you just need to drive down to Destin this time of year and deal with the traffic there and go into the stores and restaurants there, and you know you're a sinner. Now, I don't even need to do that. I can just get on John Sims Parkway and go into Niceville Walmart, and then I know I'm a sinner. What happens, though, is that our religion becomes our focus instead of the justification we need. 
So we become less focused on the fact that God has done something to make us right with him and more focused on the things that we do thinking they make us right with him. And what happens then is our religion becomes very deluded and dirty. And Jesus is very stern about this practice, religion that isn't reminding us of our need for God. My wife and I bought a 12-passenger van because um, there's eight of us, and you don't need to know all the reasons we have it, but we have it. And um, it has these giant mirrors on the sides because there are huge blind spots in this van. I mean, I, I drive a smaller car than that, and so anytime I get into that van, and Christy's not there to tell me about the cars that are beside me because I don't know what I'd do without her doing that, but uh, anytime I get in the car, um, I have to be careful to make sure that I see what's in those blind spots. And I think it's very easy when we talk about what we're talking today to point our finger to people who we know that are religious that don't really walk the walk. But what I'm asking us to do today is not to point the finger, but to ask God to expose our blind spots. What is it that we might be missing? And we are missing something, so what are we missing? And I wanna just walk through this text again because I believe in this text we can find five things that indicate the wrong motivation for religion. Five things that indicate the wrong motivation for religion, which may show you that you, your motivation is just completely wrong, or it just may help you to course correct as you're, even though you came to faith because Jesus' love and his grace, you are kind of straying, if you will. And so let's just walk through this text and see those five indicators. The first one is, again, verse 38, where Jesus says, who like to walk around in long robes. And so the first indicator that of, you know, or first thing that might indicate the wrong motivation for religion is dressing the part. Dressing the part. So Israel was supposed to be, you know, God's people and organize themselves in a certain way. And they had the tabernacle. God eventually let them have the temple. And there was ceremony that took place. And then you know, in addition to that, they had oral laws that really kind of guided how they practiced their faith. And the purpose of all that was to remind them about who God is and their need for his mercy and his grace. But they had functioned and dressed the part of God's people, missing the heart of God. And, you know, I, I've heard people say this expression before, not here in this church, but before, that, you know, on Sunday, we have to put on our Sunday best. And I don't think that everybody has bad intentions in saying that. Some people are saying, hey, we just wanna make sure as we go to worship, we're, you know, just we're kind of in tune with um, what we're going to do. But, but I think we have to be careful with that language because what we can quickly emphasize, and it's not what we teach, it's what we emphasize that sticks with people, specifically to our children, that on Sunday, we've gotta look like we care about God, but the rest of the week, who cares? And so that, that language, that emphasis, really places us in a position we shouldn't be. On Saturday nights, often my wife will tell our children to get out their church clothes or get their church clothes ready, and I annoyingly tell her, well, you are the church, so you know the clothes aren't church clothes. Um, you can wear them other places too. Um, because, and, and if you know, you hear people refer to the church as a building all the time, but I don't do that because we are the church as God's people and we represent Christ wherever we might go. Now, we're supposed to gather together, ecclesia, that's the assembly of, of the church, but the reality is, you know, 
We're honoring Christ and representing Christ everywhere we go, every single day of our life. It's not just a Sunday thing. And I've heard, again, people say, well, you know, when we go to the restaurants, you know, on Sunday, people know that, you know, that we prioritize God by how we're dressed. Maybe they should just know we prioritize God by how we treat them, how we act. Maybe we don't need to dress a certain part a certain way in order for us to pe- for, for people to see that we're associated with Christ, but maybe it's the love that we show people. And I, I think this is unfair, but often people say that Sundays are the worst time to work in the restaurant industry um, because of all the Christians. And I think that the truth is, it's not that we're any worse, it's just there's no real distinction uh, from us by uh, how we represent Christ, and yet we clearly stand out because uh, of what we're wearing. And I think we need to really be careful that we aren't ever trying to appear religious instead of just being people who love Jesus. So wear what you're convicted to wear, but just be somebody who honors Christ. Be careful that you are not what Jesus calls a whitewashed tomb, dead on the inside and looking good on the outside. The second indicator here that we might have the wrong motivation for religion is also found in verse 38 when Jesus says, and they like greetings in the marketplaces. The second indicator is declaring rank and titles. They thought by our religion and our devotion to God, we should be called rabbi, we should be called master, we should be called father, we should be called teacher. But here's what Jesus taught, Matthew 23, verse eight through 10. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. A minister should not desire to be called pastor, or doctor, or reverend, or teacher, or whatever it may be. He should desire to exalt Christ. God does gift people, calls people to leadership in the church, but the point of that is the exaltation of Christ. To be a deacon or a minister or whatever it may be is not a rite of passage based on spiritual maturity, but it is a call to service because of love for Jesus and his church. And, you know, some people, you know, anyway, I don't have time. Some people, they get to this place where they have their ministry, And church can't be church and it can't be worship if the church doesn't have that program and they can't be in that position with that program. And they wear it as a badge of honor. If you've ever seen the movie The Jerk with Steve Martin, you probably don't need to see it to know enough about it, but he gets a business card and he's just like really not done anything, but he's so proud of himself because he has a business card. And that's why I think sometimes Christians can be, now I'm serving in this role, I'm doing this, look at me, I deserve recognition for this. You know, at one time, most, especially Baptists, just called each other brother and sister, and there's a point in that. We are all equal. Nobody arrives to a position of status, and if we are in a leadership position, it is a position of service. The third indicator that we might um, have the wrong motivation for religion, Jesus says in verse 38, is they wanna have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast. So I would say the third indicator is insisting upon recognition and honor. 
Now, I do believe that we have lost a culture of honor. We kind of criticize everything about our past, and there's some right to that, but with it, we just kind of throw everything that's been good out. But here's the reality. We should never insist upon recognition or honor. See, it's our responsibility to honor others and not to require them honoring us. Matthew says it like this in his gospel, Matthew 23, verse 2 and 3. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, not the work, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. You see, when, when our motivation for religion becomes recognition and honor from other people, we begin to miss the point of our faith. Our, pain, our faith is to honor Christ and for people to recognize who Christ is, and that's why we live our lives. And we're not constantly trying to get people to appreciate us. And in fact, in the call to husband and wife, it doesn't say husbands ensure your wives submit to you. It doesn't say wives ensure your husbands cherish you. It says husbands cherish your wives. Wives submit to your husbands. You see, the call is not on us to demand that other people are doing what they should be doing. It's to be doing what God has called us to do. And I think we often serve Jesus with the condition that people recognize us and appreciate us because the appreciation of Christ on the cross for us was not sufficient. When we realize that his recognition for us and dying for us is all that we need, that is the fuel for service, not the appreciation of people around us. The fourth thing that might be an indicator that we have the wrong motivation for religion, Jesus refers to the scribes and how they devour widows' houses, houses, I would say it's this, taking advantage of faithful but vulnerable people. Taking advantage of faithful but vulnerable people. Alistair Begg says that the scribes were preying on the widows instead of praying for the widows. In our churches, we have widows, we have single moms, and we have often women whose husbands aren't believers who are going to church, they're serving the church, and they're there by themselves, and they are leaning to the church for something that they don't have outside of the church, and we need to protect them and not take advantage of them. And so we live in a day and age where many religious leaders see their faithfulness and service as an opportunity to build their platform and them to the extent of what we see taking place in sexual abuse and these kind of things. But in addition, just general neglect and care and protection of people who fit in that category. Something I'll say often is this, and I, I'm, you know, if we're young families, if we have children, we often, as consumers, will come and benefit from children's ministry and student ministry and programs of the church, while many times it's widows and it's single moms and it's women whose husbands aren't believers who are serving faithfully in and out, and we're not serving at all. And I would say that is taking advantage of them. See, we need to look out and make sure we're caring for these types of people who are vulnerable. The church should be the place where they are shepherded, not just by the ones who are called to be shepherded by each other, that we are really concealing and caring for people. And so I would ask of a church and of a leadership, is there a heightened awareness and protection, or often are these people being used and they being are they being taken advantage of? The last indicator of... Uh, wrong motivation for religion, Jesus tells us in verse 40, is for a pretense, they make long prayers. And so I would say it's performing during prayer. So uh, whenever 
Christy and I were uh, newly married, we uh, served together at First Baptist Church of Holt, Florida. And um, I was there uh, as a youth pastor. And I won't say this guy's name because, you know, some of you somehow may know this guy. Uh, but there was this deacon, and he was as country as you think of when you think of Holt, Florida. And he talked like, hey, you know, he'll call me little preacher, even though I'm not small, but it was because I was young. Hey, little preacher, you know, you're going to come down and help the grandkids, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, he just talked like that. I'm, he would tell you he talked. I mean, he would talk like that and tell you he talked. I talk like that. You know, anyway, it's just true. So one Sunday, I'm sitting in service, and the pastor or someone asked this gentleman to pray for the offering. And so he prays for the offering, and I'm not kidding you, he says, our heavenly Father, doth this day you bring forth. And I had to open my eyes during the prayer. No, you're not supposed to do that. And look and see if like somebody was like being piped in over audio praying. It was him. And I, I don't think this man was intentionally doing anything wrong, but rather he had been taught that when you pray, this is how you pray. This is what had been modeled for him and emphasized for him over these years. But that is not what prayer is. Prayer is not a performance. It's ironic that Jesus teaches us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he teaches us how to pray. And the point is teaching us the heart of prayer as sons and daughters crying out to our dad. And yet we have made the Lord's Prayer a performance often. An empty, meaningless, vain repetition instead of really connecting with the heart of our father. What we try to tell our children is it's not about how impressive you sound. It's like talking, just talking, talking to me. You're talking to God. And I understand that some of you are introverts. You're never going to pray in front of a bunch of people because you don't want to talk in front of a bunch of people. I get that. But it is not a performance. It's just talking to God. And I hope you feel that and know that. And if any of what you're doing is really a performance, then you're, it's the wrong motivation. Now, as I studied for this, I began to think about a lot that is set up in the name of honoring God and helping people find him. And I have to say that I find it absolutely astounding that there are literally ministers who wear robes to designate their piety and position who insist on being called by a formal title, have a special seat on the platform, have designated parking spaces and places to seat at church meals and play, pray elaborate, scripted out prayers across Christianity today. And there's a culture amongst church leadership that is about building our platform and our name. Maybe reading Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of these verses will strike you in the way it struck me from the message in Mark chapter 12, verse 38 through 40. It says that he continued teaching. Watch out for the religion scholars. They love to walk around in academic gowns, preening in the radiance of public, public flattery, basking in prominent positions, sitting at the head table at every church function, and all the time they are exploiting the weak and helpless. 
The longer the prayers, the worse they get. But they'll pay for it in the end. And so I read this and I think about a lot of what's done in the name of church leadership. And I'm like, have you even read the gospels? Do you even know the teaching of Jesus? And here's, here's the scary thing, they do. But the lens through which they're reading the Bible is so thick that they can't hear the words of Jesus and change. And this is scary because these people who have this thick lens through which they hear the words of Jesus are then teaching people how to live in response to Jesus. And Jesus says at the end of this passage, they will receive the greater condemnation. That's what he says in verse 40. Greater, again, another phrase dealing with rank. He says, you want the positions of rank? Okay, you can have the positions of rank on earth, but you'll receive the position of rank in judgment and condemnation. You see, God will deal with leaders who have led people further away from God through their examples and instructions. God will deal with leaders who have led people further away from God through their examples and instructions. The justice of God will deal with this. I don't fully understand how there's these greater levels of condemnation, but there will be, the scripture tells us this. We ought to know this and we ought to be on watch that this is taking place amongst professing believers. Martin Luther said, with the wolves you cannot be too severe and with the sheep you cannot be too gentle. I struggle with this. I know that my primary responsibility is to teach and to shepherd those who are our church who are here willingly, but as I see what takes place amongst Christianity, even in this community, it, it frustrates me the number of people who are being misled by people building a name, building a platform, not looking to the words of Jesus to inform what our religion should be like. And the reason people buy into this stuff is because a lot of people are just looking for validation and justification, and this is what leads to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not saying one thing and doing another. It's believing one thing, being one thing, and then practicing another. It's being an actor this is why there's so much inconsistency among professing Christians' lives because it's not just a matter of missing it a little bit. It's a matter of missing it completely. There are people who are affirming the face of Christ, but it's really not who they are. You see, it's what you believe that determines how you behave. And so what you really are convicted of is what really determines how it is you live your life. And so if you have religious activity topped on to the fact that you think you're just good with God on your own and all you need is a little bit of cleaning up instead of the life that Christ brings, then the reality is you will behave according to that and not according to the teachings of Scripture. To have faith is to be convicted of something. It's to be convinced of something. I used to admire when people said, I believe what I believe and so I'm good. But if what I've really found out that means is I feel good enough based on how I look at my life because I'm not really looking to the holy God who has created me to walk with him and know him. And so then people leave the church often when re restrictions or requirements or they're confronted with that. But here's the reality we need to realize today. Any basis for righteousness, that's mean, that means right standing or right relationship with God that is not defined by God is self-righteousness. 
any basis for righteousness that is not defined by God is self-righteousness. So whether it's a super formal religion that we say doing these things and practicing these things makes me right, or whether it's this new age, hey, I'm just gonna follow my heart and that's what makes me good with God, either of those things are self-righteousness. They're not what God says is righteousness. So hopefully you can see today that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, Jesus is the life, only do we have righteousness through the grace of the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And if we aren't focused on the grace of Christ and the righteousness that he brings, then what can happen in our religion is it leads us away from Christ and it leads us to rules or it leads us to some version of Christianity and to being deceived. And I will warn you that if we don't look at the scriptures and examine the gospels and the teachings of Jesus Christ, our deception will continue to grow. And that people have gotten all the way to leadership in the church without ever really knowing who Christ is. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11 and 12, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The call to the Christian life and the call to Christian leadership is to look at Jesus. David Platt says, leadership in the kingdom involves submission to the king. That's my question for a leader. When somebody wants to teach at our church, when somebody wants to lead in our church, when somebody wants to have whatever role it is, are they teachable? Are they teachable because of the humility they have, because of God's holiness, our sin, and his way of righteousness. Not perfection, but teachable. Because if those seeds of the gospel are in their hearts, the kingdom of God will take root and it will blossom into living for his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You see, when we grasp the gospel, our motivation moves from earthly rewards and recognition to heavenly surrender and service. When we grasp the gospel, our motivation moves from earthly rewards and recognition to heavenly surrender and service. So I'm just gonna be very honest with you here. Some of you, religion is just trying to get rewards and recognition that you couldn't get in the world. And this is the place where you feel you get status. That's the wrong motivation for religion. The right motivation for religion is to realize what Jesus has done for us and to surrender to him and to serve others because that's the great privilege we have in life is to be identified with him. And for those of us who are leaders, it may indeed be filled with a lot of heartache. It may indeed be filled with a lot of wasting of your time and your money and your energy and your tears and whatever it may be. But when we are in a position where we are humbled and we are being used in ways that we cannot see and we're trusting God, we identify with Christ. For every Christian, I would say that. When we look to Christ, we see he did not consider equality with God, but he made himself nothing. He was a servant. And so we are called to be servants. And this is not just true for leaders. 
This is true for us in our homes. When we are trying to pour into faithfully as God's daughter and God's son into our home and we're not seeing the earthly rewards, we identify with Christ in a special and unique way. And our desire should not be that everything would be the way that we want it to be first and foremost. It would be that we are surrendered to Christ and that we are being used by him for his glory. That's at the core of who we are as his people. Let me pray for us. Jesus, what we're talking about is not the way that we drift. The way that we drift is over into where we will hit something in our blind spot and it'll be catastrophic. The way that we drift is to be recognized, to make sure we are appreciated, to be rewarded, to be elevated. And so God, may I and everyone in this room seek to be your servants. And God, we're not doing that because we think we will prove ourselves to others. We're doing that because you have proved yourself over and over. And we're doing that because you proved yourself on the cross and in the resurrection. And so Lord, may we be marked not by our religious activity, but by our humility for the one who gave everything for us. I pray this for us, that you will be exalted through our lives in Jesus' name.